morning. Man, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. I'm, I'm blown away by what God is doing here in the life of your church. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 111. Psalm chapter 111. Now, at my church, 6th Avenue Community Church, we just finished walking through the book of Judges. And it was a really, really, really good season for our church. It was tough, but it was good. Uh, The main theme of Judges was how over and over and over and over and over and over again, the people of God got into trouble when they failed to look to the Word of God, choosing instead to do whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And the book of Judges says that when we do what's right in our own eyes, we do that which is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as we survey the landscape of American Christianity, I think it should be fairly obvious that far too many churches are doing the same thing that Israel was doing in the days of Judges. Far too many churches are just doing whatever seems right in their own eyes in general, but in relation to corporate worship in particular. Far too many churches are taking their cues on how to worship God from the world rather than the Word. Instead of doing what's right in God's eyes, as God has prescribed in His Word, they're doing whatever seems right in their own eyes, which is evil. And I'm not talking, of course, about whether or not a church uses a pulpit or a lectern. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of jealous. This is really nice. I'm not talking about whether the church has drums or piano in their music. I'm not talking about whether the church uses the NIV or the ESV or the King James Version, which is truly inspired. I'm talking about churches outright ignoring entire chapters in the Bible that address how we should approach God in worship. I'm talking about calling things good in worship that God calls evil, and calling things evil in worship that God specifically calls good. I'm talking about churches that make it a practice to worship God according to the wisdom of this world, rather than the wisdom of the Word. So the question for us here this morning, the question for Chevrolet Church is, how do we make sure that we don't fall into that same trap? By God's grace, how do we make sure that we worship God according to the wisdom of his word and not according to the wisdom of the world? And we could probably spend 12 weeks here together talking about that, and I know you would want that. You would want to bring me back every Sunday, but I can't be here every Sunday. So we're just going to spend one Sunday together, one sermon looking at it from Psalm chapter 111. So please join me following along as I read God's word out loud. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. 
He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It's completely sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Let me pray. Lord God, you know, you know that I'm nothing, that you're everything. And in your goodness, you've called these people here together in this room, and you've indwelt them by your spirit, you've purchased them by the blood of your son, you've given them a name that is above all names, giving them your very name. And yet we live in a world that is dark and broken and fallen and ruined by sin, and it is so hard to follow you faithfully. It is so difficult to worship you the way that we should. Our only hope, God, is that you will sustain us by your grace. And God, you have given us an abundance of grace this morning. We're here gathered together with fellow saints to strengthen us and encourage us. You've given us your word to remind us. You've given us your spirit to open our ears and our eyes to help us Learn what you have for us today. So God, would you please speak clearly and directly to the hearts of your people this morning, shaping them, molding them, making us more like yourself. We pray these things with boldness and confidence, knowing that you delight to give all good gifts to you. I've got several points for you this morning, which I did not list out ahead of time in my manuscript, so I'm going to give them to you one at a time. Point number one, worship is a command. The first thing we see in Psalm 111 is that worship is a command to God's people. You can even kind of get there contextually. The, the, the worship leader is leading God's people, and he calls out to the people, and he says, praise the Lord. Now, You'll notice that I'm taking praise to kind of be functioning synonymously with worship. Uh, if you're a young seminary student, don't come up to me after the service and hit me with a, well, actually, praise and worship aren't quite exactly the same thing. The, the general idea is the same, okay? Praise and worship kind of go together like a hendiadis, like nice and cozy, and, and God's people are called to praise his name. And praise is nothing more than an expression of approval, or admiration. Therefore, to worship God is simply to express our approval of God. It's to express our admiration of God. And we can use more and different words to say the same thing. 
We praise and worship God when we delight in God, when we exalt the name of God, when we glorify God, when we declare the majesty of God. Said another way, biblical worship is the right response from God's people to who God is and what he has done for us to save us. Said yet another way, we praise God because he is worthy of our praise, because he deserves to be praised. And this is just something that the Bible tells us all over the place, just over and over again from the very end. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You, O Lord, are worthy to receive glory and honor. There is a worth in you that, that cries out and demands a response from me. Psalm 18, chapter 3, I will call upon the name of the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Now listen to this one, Acts chapter 14, verse 15. The apostles are speaking and they say, we are bringing you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God. What are those worthless things? Idols, fake gods, stone, metal, doesn't matter. They have no inherent worth in them. They don't deserve to be praised. And so the apostles say, stop giving praise to these things that have no worth and give praise to the one who is worthy of your praise. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, when we praise God, we agree with Deuteronomy 32, which says, he is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways and all of his judgments are true and without iniquity. Just and right is he. This is what my kids say about me all the time. It's crazy. Same thing. Now, for the Christian, the command to worship God, it should be the easiest command in the world to obey. Out of all the commands in the Bible, this should be the easiest command for us to obey. Why? Because we believe that God has given us eyes to see his worthiness. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're looking in verses 4 through 6. All right. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So we're talking about people who don't know God, unbelievers. Their, their minds have been blinded. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They can't see the worthiness of Jesus, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown that same light in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here we're told that when the world looks at Jesus in the gospel, it sees nothing. Nothing of worth. No value, no truth, no beauty, no goodness. But we are not like the world. 
the Spirit has shown in our hearts. The scales have fallen from our eyes. And even though our moral vision is not always 2020, we can, by God's grace, perceive the beauty and the glory of Christ in the gospel. Therefore, worship should be automatic, even if it's imperfect. It should be our reflexive response to what we are now capable of seeing. It's kind of like, uh, man, I, I rarely go on Facebook for hopefully obvious reasons. But whenever I do, the only thing I really go to look at is the memories feature on there, you know, where it'll show you the old pictures, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. And uh, what often comes up is pictures of my children when they were younger, you know, and there's just nothing like looking at them. You're like, that's not even the same person. And then I, I look at these pictures of my daughters and I just immediately begin to smile. My heart just overwhelms with joy. I just, I, I want to take it and show it to other people. Look at how tiny they were. I don't have to force this response. It just happens. It's automatic. It's the right response. And the same thing should be true, only infinitely more, of our souls. When we behold God with unveiled faces, we see him and we worship. Okay, so... Now that we understand that worship is a command, let's take a closer look at how we should obey this command to worship. Point number two, worship is a matter of the whole heart. If you're still in 2 Corinthians, flip back over to Psalm 111. Let's get back over to Psalm 111. As you're turning there, I should tell you that uh, before we talk about the whole in whole heart, we're just going to talk about the heart. So I got little sub-points here. Sub-point number one for point two is worship is a matter of the heart. So when we say that worship is a matter of the heart, what we mean is that true worship is not merely external, right? It's not merely external. Jesus says this in Matthew 15. He talks about people who worship him, honor him with their lips, but really their heart is far from him. And he says, in vain, do they worship me? So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying it's possible for his people, some of his people, those who profess to be his people, to have fool's gold worship. That is, it looks real on the outside, but on the inside it's fake. So what does that mean for us as professing Christians? It means that we can go to church, we can sing, we can pray, we can read the Bible, give money, we can feed the poor, we can evangelize. We can do all these things that look like worship to those who cannot see our hearts. But true worship, according to God, begins in the heart and then it overflows out into every other area of our lives. And throughout the pages of Scripture, we find that God reserves his harshest words, his most severe critique for those who merely pretend to worship by doing religious things outwardly, who are nevertheless corrupted inwardly. Maybe the worst example of this, the most harsh example, is Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. This is what God has to say about that kind of worship. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. 
I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your song. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. It's like God saying, hey, I visited your church and it sucked. I hated every second of it. I hated it when you preached. I hated it when you read scripture. I hated it when you passed the plate. I hated it. Feasts, worthless. Assemblies, worthless. Offerings and sacrifice, worthless. Songs, might as well not even sing them. They sound like noise to me. Friends, if our hearts are not right before God, not only will our worship be false, but it will be false in such a way as to stir up God's wrath against us. Modern man is confused about worship in typically one of two ways. He either thinks worship is an inside-only phenomenon or an outside-only phenomenon, but God says, no, worship must be, it can only be, definitionally, inside and outside, not either or. Now, you'll notice that the psalmist says, In verse 1, go back to chapter 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So worship is not only a matter of the heart, it's a matter of the whole heart, which leads us to sub-point number two. Worship is a matter of the whole heart. This point is a simple one. True worship requires our whole heart. In Scripture, the heart represents the totality of our inner being, right? It's, it's all, all of us. So what the psalmist is saying here is that true worship is all-consuming. In true worship, we give our undivided attention to God. In true worship, we do not divide our affections for God. In true worship, we don't just offer most of our life to God, but then hold back a tiny piece for ourselves. If you've ever visited my church, which no one here has, I bet, Sixth Avenue Community Church, it's the best. You should totally come. You've probably, if you would have visited, you would hear me say something like this pretty regularly. I don't mind repeating myself. I'll say something like, if you've had a rough week or a rough morning, it's time to put that aside, right? I'll say, if you had a fight with your spouse or you know, uh, the stock market's driving you crazy or the kids were being bonkers on the way in or the work is crazy right now, I'll say, hey, don't let those things dominate your heart as we begin our corporate worship. Submit them to Jesus in true worship and then I tell everyone to make sure their phones are turned off, right? I do this because most of us do not come into Sunday morning worship prepared to meet God with our whole heart. We come in divided, distracted. We need to be recentered. We need to refocus. This is why we have a moment of silence, right? Okay, things were absolutely crazy as we were working our way in, even crazy as we sat down, kind of crazy as we're getting started. Just take a moment, calm down, remember why we're here, why we're here and prepare to worship God with our whole heart. And this is... This whole heart thing, it's, 
It's all over the Bible. You can even see it in kind of the bookends in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Matthew 22 where Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. But the language goes like this. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So no matter where you go in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Pentateuch, the Gospels, God is saying the same thing to his people over and over and over again. He wants our love for him, our devotion to him, and our worship of him to be total. And that's bad news. Even for us, God's people. Because we never do that. Never, Sean? Aren't you being? Maybe you do. I think most of us never do that. Well, Sean, are you saying that if I don't praise God with 100% of my heart, 100% of the time, that I'm failing at worship? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what God is saying. And it's right here that you, you might be inclined to give up. You might be inclined to, oh, he's legalist. You might want to walk away, throw in the towel, take your ball and go home. I know how you might be feeling. I'm never going to be able to worship God perfectly, so why even bother? God's never going to be pleased with my worship because it's not 100%, it's not wholehearted, so why even try? And it is precisely at this point that we have to remember, when we're feeling hopeless and helpless, we must remember the gospel. The gospel does not mince words. It doesn't downplay the seriousness of our failure to worship God the way that we're supposed to. No, the gospel points right at our failures. And it says, you have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You fall short of the glory of God every second of every day. You have failed to respond appropriately to the beauty and the glory and the goodness of God with your whole heart. The gospel says you are guilty. But the gospel doesn't stop there, right? That would be the bad news gospel. And maybe some of you guys grew up in churches where that's like the only part of the gospel that you heard. Let's, let's keep going. Good news, rest of the Bible gospel. The gospel goes on to say that even though we have failed and even though we continue to fail, God has loved us better than we deserve. He's loved us so much that he gave us his son to save us from our low-grade, anemic worship. And he says that when his son was here, he worshiped the Father perfectly. He walked in, alliance, uh, in agreement with the will of the Father, absolutely. No derivation, no deviation, no sin. And so now, if we repent in, of our sins and our failure to worship, and if we believe in Jesus and his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, that now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our half-hearted, anemic, low-grade worship. He sees his son, and he sees his son's perfect righteousness. That's really good. I don't know if it's good of you. I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus and made this, what I've just said, true of your life. I hope you have. If you haven't, I don't know why you haven't. If you want to talk more about it, you can come and find me or anybody else after the service. We'd love to talk to you about it. 
But guess what, guys? The gospel doesn't even stop there. This is what I love about the gospel, right? You're like, all right, I got good news. And then you give the good news, and it's like, all right, whew, that was good. It's like, <laughs> we're not done yet. The gospel also says that God gives us his Holy Spirit so that not only will we be forgiven of our failure to worship God like we ought to, but we will also be strengthened to worship God like we should. We will be empowered to grow in our capacity to worship. I remember, guys, when I first got saved, I was a drug-dealing gangbanger. I came into church. I had a gold grill with vampire teeth. I'll show you pictures some other time. But, like, listen, I did not know people were, like, raising their hands. I was like, I got to get out of here. This is crazy. And, you know, this many years later, I love to worship. I've grown in my capacity to be able to worship God according to his word. Due in large part to his Holy Spirit helping me to grow in that ability. Not just the Holy Spirit, also the church, bearing with me, teaching me, discipling me. My affections have grown. None of this is in my manuscript. We have to keep going. One of the main ways that we can grow in wholehearted worship is by meditating on this God. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling to worship God like you should, and that's all of us, then you need to preach the gospel to you. You need to say things like this. I have not received a halfway salvation, therefore I should not give God my half-hearted worship. Christ did not go halfway to the cross for me, so I will not worship him with half my heart. Jesus did not pay half of the price of my redemption to buy me back by spilling half of his blood, so I will not give him half of myself. Jesus did not merely begin the process of my salvation by dying on the cross, but he completed this, the process of my salvation by rising from the grave and indwelling me by his spirit, where, by the way, he promises to lead me all the way home. He helps me when I fail and flounder in worship. You should say things like, Jesus does not withhold any good thing from me as his child. So I will not withhold any good thing from him. Jesus did not get halfway out of the grave for me, so I will not get halfway out of the bed on Sunday morning. God has not loved me with a halfway love or a one-third love or a three-quarters love. He has loved me with his whole heart. And I will, by God's grace, respond in kind. And then when you still fail, because you will, when you still fail to worship God as well as you should, remember two more things. Remember that Jesus died for your low-grade worship. You are forgiven. And then number two, remember that one day, man, it's going to be a good day. One day, you will worship God perfectly. Whew. I wish we were just a little more Pentecostal. You know what I'm saying? Just right now, just a little bit, right? Come on. One day, <laughs> when you're prone to discouragement regarding your anemic worship, remember that on the last day when we're home with Jesus, all half-hearted worship will come to an end. It'll be done. There will be no quiet singing. 
There will be no distracted prayers. There will be no crying children in the sanctuary. There will be no social media calling you away from your devotion to the Lord. There will be no holding back, no self-awareness, no embarrassment. There will be no hidden sin, no lingering guilt, no secret shame keeping us from worshiping God like we should. When all is said and done, those who know Jesus will worship him with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength, and they will cry out with every fiber of their being, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That'll be the day. Point number three. Worship is corporate. This point is going to be quick. Sorry to disappoint. The first half of verse 1 says that worship is a matter of the heart. But the second half of verse 1 teaches us that matter of the heart does not mean private matter. Look at verse 1 again. I don't know what you're thinking. Dude, we haven't even gotten out of verse 1. We'll get there. Don't worry. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Where? In the company of the upright in the congregation. So the text just assumes that God's people, when they worship God, will do so in the company of the congregation. Now, who is the congregation? Look at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Simply put, the congregation are those who delight in God. That's you here, the covenanted members of this Church, we are those who delight in God. And here's the simple idea for this point. God's people don't like to worship alone. We just don't. A quarantine during COVID should have been hard for you. Just like I'm from Alabama, I don't know anything about football, but I'll tell you this. I know that Alabama football fans want to watch Alabama football games with other people who worship Nick Saban. You know what I'm saying? They want to be around other people who love to say, roll tide. And those who delight in Jesus, they don't want to be around people who are enemies of Jesus, unless they get a chance to tell them about the glory of Jesus. Now, uh, I've heard Christians say things like, well, actually, I enjoy being around lost people more than I enjoy being around Christians. Well, friends, if that's true, there's probably something deeply wrong with your walk with the Lord. There's one of two things that's happened. Uh, Number one, you have had only terrible experiences with the church and maybe even with your family. And I know Christians who have had this testimony, right? They've only ever been around nominal Christians, and I come from the Bible Belt, right? There are like 100 churches in my city. I understand exactly. This is your experience I understand what, you, what your life has been like, right? You, you're, just, you're in a church where nobody actually loves Jesus. It's just kind of like a social club, but it's a really lame social club where you don't get to do anything fun. And I, Yeah, if, if that was my only experience of Christianity, then I too would say that I enjoy being around lost people more than I enjoy being around the church. The other possibility is that you enjoy being around lost people more than Christians because you yourself are lost. 
you are the nominal Christian in the church. The one who's never really repented of your sins, trusted in Christ. You don't enjoy being around Jesus, which means you don't enjoy being around His body. You're self-deceived. The Scripture could not be any clearer. 1 John chapter 4, verse 21, it says, And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You say you don't love God, but you don't love your brothers, then there's actually probably an issue with your loving God. Having said that, I want to recognize that there may be some of us here, even this morning, who feel like we really are trying to love the congregation. Like, yeah, Sean, I get it. Theologically, that makes sense. And as I'm being discipled, I'm trying to grow in my affection for the saints, but it feels like my affection hasn't really caught up with my theology. I still struggle to get here on Sundays and, man, Sunday nights. That's even worse of a struggle. And community groups, even tougher. Well, if that's you, I have four things for you to consider, okay? The first point of application here is it's hard to love people you don't know. Right? So if you're saying, I'm struggling to love the saints, to worship together with them, I just want to tell you, it's hard to get to love them if you haven't gotten to know them. You've got to spend time with them. You've got to get here on Sunday, not every other Sunday, not once a month Sunday, not Sunday if you're not too tired from work last night. And when I say get here on Sunday, I don't mean come in 10 minutes after and then leave 15 minutes early so you don't talk to anyone. I mean, come early, stay late, really get to know people. The second thing that I have for you, and this one is so simple it has to be profound. Pray. Ask God to help you love your fellow Christians. God, you know, go go be honest with God. Go to your prayer closet and say things that you'd be embarrassed to say in front of other people, right? God, I love you so much, and your word tells me that I'm supposed to love your people, but these folks at Chevrolet are driving me crazy, right? Help me to love them. I feel like I'm not making any connections. You'd be surprised what God might do. The third thing I have for you here is find some way to serve your fellow church members. Sometimes we just need to act first and trust that our affections will catch up. And usually when we do that, I find that they do. Uh, The fourth little tidbit here is preach the gospel to yourself. Sometimes we get to know God's people and we don't really enjoy them because sin is alive and well in us and in them. But we have to remember, guys, that the gospel says that God moved towards us even when we were unlovable, right? It was pictured in Jesus and the leper, right? Jesus comes into contact with the leper. The world would look at the leper and start shouting and run away, no touching. Jesus doesn't move away. He moves in. That's a picture of you and me, dead in sin, leprous with sin. And yet Jesus didn't hold his nose and stand back. He moved in towards us. So If you're struggling to connect with your fellow saints in this church, press in anyway. And remember that you are also unlovable in many more ways than you probably even understand. If you're single, wait till you get married. You'll come to understand it with pristine clarity. God will be very kind to reveal that to you. As we wrap up point number three, I want to remind you that the first thing that God did after he created Adam would say, it is not good for man to be alone. Think about that. 
Adam and God alone in the garden. Oh man, worship. Can you imagine what worship would be like? It's just me and God alone in the garden. And yet God says, even though there's no sin in the world, even though you have me here in your presence, it's not good for you to be alone. So if it wasn't good for Adam to be alone with God in the garden, if he needed other human beings for his worship to be complete, well, then it's not good for you to worship God. Point number four, worship is doctrinal. Look at verses two and three. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. So when I say that worship is doctrinal, all I mean is that worship must be grounded in truth, objective truth, biblical truth, gospel truth. You have to remember that worship is ultimately a responsive act. Worship is what happens when God's people rightly respond to the truth of who God is and what he has done to save us. And if we don't know who God is, and if we don't know what he has done to save us, then our worship response will not be appropriate. This is why the psalmist says that all who delight in God study God. They want to open the Bible. They want to learn more about who he is. They want to come to the Sunday school class on the attributes of God. They want to dig into theology books or listen to sermons during their breaks. According to Psalm 111, study is the fuel of worship. So if you're struggling to worship, maybe the problem is that you haven't studied God or that you don't make a regular practice of studying God. You kind of here on a Sunday morning half-heartedly paying attention to a sermon and friends, that's not enough. It's better than nothing, but it's not enough. Your car may be, your worship car may be stuttering because you're kind of running out of gas because you're not delighting in the study of God. And the word study here, it just means to carefully consider. So, here's a question for you. Would you say that you carefully consider who God is and what he has done, particularly as it's revealed in his word? Do you consider God as carefully as you consider your next social media post? I got to get the angle just right on the picture, and then I got to get the filter right, and then you type up your little thing that goes underneath it, and then you edit it four or five times, and then you post it, and then you go back, and how many people have responded, how many people have liked it. Do you study God that carefully? Do you consider God as carefully as you consider the stock market? Do you consider God as carefully as you consider the lines on your face as you look in the mirror? Botox right here. Do you consider God as carefully as you consider your macronutrients? Do you consider God as carefully as you consider the latest celebrity gossip? Pete Davidson, Kim Kardashian, what are they going to do? Do you carefully consider the person and work of Jesus Christ? When you read the Bible, how do you read it? Do you skim or do you dig? When you pray, how do you pray? Do you rush or do you linger? When you come to church on a Sunday morning, are you engaged 
or are you distracted? Friends, you don't have to be an academic to study God. That's good news for me. All you need to be able to do is just love God. I remember the early days of my relationship with my wife, Amber, when we were still in the process of falling in love. And uh, we would stay up talking all night, all night. Work in the morning, didn't matter. Stay up talking all night. Why? Because we were studying one another, carefully. Tell me about your parents and, and where you're from and what you like and what you don't like. And I want to hear more about how you did this and the way that you did that. And I want to know all of you, the best of you, the worst of you, the deepest parts of you. We do the same thing with our friends, don't we? Right? We study them. We consider them carefully. Whenever you get a new friend, you're like, hey, what about this? And they go, oh, it's a long story. And you're like, dude, I got time. Come on, spill the beans. Study. But here's the thing. After you've been married for going on 16 years like Amber and I, there's not a lot left to study. I know Amber. Amber knows me. Every now and then she'll find out something new about me. You know, she'll hear a story that I haven't told before, which is crazy because she's heard every story I ever have to tell a thousand times. But she'll hear a new story and she'll go, how come I didn't know that? Or, uh, you know, we change over the course of our marriage. I'm a different person now at the age of 35 than I was at the age of 19 when she married me. And she's very thankful for that. And as I change, she begins to know the new me. But there's still less to study. And, and listen, most couples, they freak out when they feel their marriage going from that one phase to the other. They, they freak out because they don't realize it's just a normal part of life. But there is no escaping it. The longer you're in a relationship with a friend or a spouse or even a church, the less there is to study. But not with God. With God, the careful study of Him will always produce more and more fruit. He is infinite. He is eternal. His mighty works are full of splendor and majesty. You could read this book all day every day for the rest of your life and barely skim the goodness that God has for your soul. Even when we get to heaven, we will spend the rest of eternity plumbing the depths of who God is and what he has done to save us. And it will only get better and better as we go. Every new thing that we see about salvation will be that much sweeter. Every nook and cranny we explore about his attributes will reveal something more glorious than before. To wrap up this point, let me tell you something that I think will be useful for your soul. God is infinite and eternal, which means that those who delight in studying God will find him infinitely and eternally delightful. Point number five, worship is remembering. Look at verse four. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. It is something gracious and merciful for God to cause us to remember him because were he not to cause us to remember him, we would forget him. 
And when we remember, what we're doing is we're bringing the past to bear on the present. Now, the past cannot be fully re-experienced in the present, right? And sometimes that's a good thing. It's a grace from God. A veteran has a combat nightmare. A woman has a flashback of her abuser, and that leads her anxiety to kick in. A food that you ate at Poppy's in Atlanta reminds you of the severe food poisoning that you had. And you, the past doesn't come completely to bear on the present, but it does, in a meaningful way, come back to life for us. Life in a fallen world means that sometimes memory is a curse and a trial. Having said that, Scripture also tells us that memory is the main instrument in our worship tool belt. One author tells us of nine different ways that remembering aids us in worship. We won't go through all nine, but I'll just give you a couple of them. Worshiping, it prompts us in thankfulness. Listen to Psalm 105. The instruction in the psalm is, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, and make known his deeds among the peoples. Well, how do you do that? Remember the wondrous works that he has done. Remembering raises our hope. Psalm 77, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Like if that's you right now and you're here and I don't know your story and you're like, man, I'm having a terrible week. You know, cat died. I got demoted at work. You know, health issues are flaring back up again. That, this is you. God, will you spurn me forever? Then the psalmist says, but I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Remembering prompts repentance. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Remembering fosters humility. It it warns of unbelief. Remember Lot's wife. It encourages belief. It prompts mercy, right? We're talking about mercy and justice a lot these days, right? It's kind of in the zeitgeist. Deuteronomy has something to say about how we can do that well. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were once a slave in Egypt and that your God redeemed you and gave you mercy. It does all kinds of good things for our soul. Now, this local church, I'm assuming, is like every other local church, and it has Christians everywhere on the maturity spectrum, right? So some here may be babies in the faith, right? You may need to be taught many things. Some of us here have been following Jesus for a long time, and we still need to be taught many things. But for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, I think we can all say that what we most often need in order to be faithful to Jesus is not to learn something new, right? That's what you see in a lot of false churches, a lot of unhealthy churches. They come every week, they sit down, and they're just waiting for the pastor to say something new. But most often what we need is just to be reminded of something old, something that we've already forgotten. We need to have a sort of re-epiphany. The prolific author Samuel Johnson once said that people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. That is very true for the Christian. Which is why, as a pastor, oftentimes in counseling with someone, even if they're a very wise and mature Christian, I'll often say something like this. 
hey, I know you probably already know this, but let me just say it again out loud. I don't want to assume you know, but if you know, I don't want to assume that you've remembered. So let me remind you. All of God's people like to suffer from what I call gospel amnesia. It's like we all got into a car accident and went flying into a brick wall and we have a a brain injury that causes us to forget everything all the time, a traumatic head injury. And so we just need, at all times, our brothers and sisters to remind us of who God is and what he's done for us over and over and over again. And if that's true, there's an implication of that. And the implication of that is None of us should have a haughty, unteachable spirit. I got some, some young theology nerd guys in my congregation, and I'll, every now and then I'll be talking to them about something, and then I'll, I'll, I'll quote some scripture to them. I'm like, yeah, 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 I know. I'm like, well, I know you know, but maybe you don't know the way you think you know, so let me say it again. And I would never act that way, by the way, either. Whenever a brother or sister reminds us of the gospel, we should always be thankful that God has used this person to bring the gospel to light for us yet again. And maybe they've done it with just a little bit of an angle that will allow you to hear it in a way that you never comprehended it before. Friends, God knows that we are prone to forget, which is why he has ordered our lives in every way to constantly remind us. Every time we eat food, we are reminded that we are in need of something outside of ourselves in order to live. Every time we gather on Sunday, we are reminded that we have not been saved into a silo, but rather into a family. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we're going to do today, and I'm very excited about that, we are reminded of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Listen to the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. This is my body, which is for you. And by the way, this is Paul quoting Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. How important is it to remember in worship? It's so important that Jesus made one of the two institutions in the church an act of remembrance, corporate remembrance. Then after that, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, listen to this language, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim. That's interesting. Who are you proclaiming it to? In our church, we have the Lord's Supper uh, in our members' meetings. Other churches do it with other people present. But largely in the local church, in the early church, the Lord's Supper was something that was held only with church members there. They would ask the non-members to leave. By and large, the majority of the people who are in the room when the Lord's Supper is being taken is just other Christians. So this proclamation of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate when we partake of it together is really just one grand act of corporate remembrance. In Psalm 111, verse 9, we are told that God has sent redemption to his people. And indeed he has. His son Jesus has purchased us back from the slavery of our sin. And every time we come together, we remind one another with one voice that this is true. That's the main thing that we do here on a Sunday. We worship God and remind one another. We do it as we read scriptures 
about salvation. We do it as we sing songs to celebrate our redemption. We pray prayers that extol in God's covenant love. We preach sermons, hopefully, that are rooted and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that culminate in the cross of Christ. We celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper, which picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But of course, this remembrance does not only apply to the local church. Friends, we have to remember that all of life is worship. So what do we do as parents? We teach our children how to live according to the glory of God, and then we spend every second of every day reminding of the things that we've already taught them. Go read Deuteronomy 6. When we're tempted to sin, how do we fight that temptation? We remind ourselves, according to Romans 6, that we have been united to Christ and that we have died to sin and that we are raised victorious with him. When we lack joy in our jobs, we remind ourselves that God has perfectly placed us in his good providence where he wants us. When we're prone to despair over our salvation, we remember that Christ's death on the cross, not our emotions, is the basis of our confidence and hope. The first part of learning any new language is filling up your vocabulary bank. I've tried to learn two different languages other than English, and both times when I was doing that, you would see me walking around with a sack of vocabulary cards, right? I'm just kind of going over it over and over again. I had to remember, and the only way that I would remember was by being intentional about looking over the content that I needed to remember. So brothers and sisters, given how important God's word says remembrance is, let's be intentional about reminding ourselves. Bring up the gospel at lunch after church. In my church, I just, whatever table I'm at, if we're at like five guys or whatever, I just go, all right, tell me one good gospel thing you learned today, and then we just kind of go around the table. Set reminders on your phone so you don't get too busy to read and pray and delight in the study of God. Put scripture up all over your home and car. Again, Deuteronomy 6, signposts, that kind of thing. Listen to music that preaches the gospel to you. Make it a point to spend time around people who want to talk about Jesus. And make sure to get your butt here on Sunday morning. Now, this last point, ooh, I know you're like, Sean, you've gone over the 40-minute time, and it's not a problem. Thanks, guys, for being patient. Point number six, it's going to be a short one. Worship will never end. I was recently speaking with someone in where I live who was in the very first class of Bob Jones High School. It's a big high school in my area. And I've, I've always wanted to ask this, and now I finally knew a guy who was there when it was built, and so I asked him, hey, is that like the same Bob Jones as Bob Jones University? You guys know Bob Jones University? Skirts and such, yes? Okay. Here's what he said. He said, no, this was just a guy who served in the Alabama House of Representatives who just wanted his name on something. So he paid to have a school built, and then they named it after him. Now, our first response to something like that is to cringe at the vanity, right? Just, ugh. But the truth of the matter is that we all want to be remembered. To feel meaningful in this life is to desire immortality. And we all feel meaningful. 
We want our names to travel on down through the annals of history. We want our lives to matter beyond our last heartbeat. But man, in a world full of 7 billion people, all doing amazing things at the speed of light, the odds of anyone remembering your name longer than a generation after your death are about zero. I'd be willing to bet that other than like the really crazy smart homeschool kids here, no one can list all 46 presidents. I said that in my church and I had three kids throw up their hands. They were like, I can. But most of us can't. Here's the deal. The only way for your life to matter beyond the seven to ten decades you get on this earth, if God is kind, is to dedicate your life to something eternal. Namely, worship. Look at the very last line of our psalm, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So You know that thing that you did at your job recently where you were getting up early and you were staying late and you weren't seeing your family and you were barely eating and you were losing hair because of the stress. The project that you were working on, but you crushed it. I mean, you went into the boardroom and you crushed it and your boss was like, crushed it and your team was like, you crushed it. You know, you got a promotion because of it. Maybe you were in the papers because of it. How long do you think that's going to be remembered? A week? A month? Five years? Ten years? Maybe? What about that money that you might have raised for that charitable cause? Well, it'll be spent before you probably even get your thank you card in the mail. Uh, Raising your children up to be upstanding citizens. Let me ask you this. Does anyone here know the name of their great-great-grandmother? Most of us don't. Friends, the fact of the matter is, you will be forgotten. You will be forgotten. Even by your own family, you will be forgotten. The only way that your life will matter, the only way that your name will continue to reverberate down through the annals of history, is if you give it to something eternal. And true worship of God, our text tells us this morning, will endure forever. Jude 125. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let me pray. God, as we began our sermon, we were in desperate need, called out to you for help, and you did not let us down. You reduced the distractions. You quieted our hearts. You gave me the grace to speak clearly. God, your Holy Spirit was alive, active, at work. God, we pray that you will bear much fruit from this sermon for our good. Glory of your name.